0: All right, we are in the uh, letter of 2 Corinthians in our Corinthians series. Completed the first letter in this second letter, which really follows up on the content of that. Particularly, we'll see that today. Paul views his letters as one of sorrow, one of rebuke, if you will, and one of comfort and joy with uh, uh, his own struggle in that context. The sorrow of the first letter is their division. Uh, They are divided over ministers, they're divided over spiritual gifts, they're divided over all kinds of things. The only thing that they seem to be united in is allowing sin in their midst. And that sets Paul um, into an apostolic rage, if you will. And so he writes to them, telling them that these differences are supposed to be brought together in unity. uh, And that they should remove this leaven, this sinner from their midst... Um, so that he will not disrupt the whole group. In his second letter, he reminds them that his joy is in their fellowship, and his comfort is in their love. And if the sorrow results in disunity, then joy is the result of comfort. And That's going to be the theme of this letter. So he greets them with the ironic blessing, a shortened version of that. He gives a bracha where he talks about blessed be the God um, who is the father of mercy and the God of all comfort. And then he has to explain something. I talked about this last week, so I'll do it real briefly. He had planned on coming to see them on his way to Macedonia, on his way back from Macedonia, but he hadn't done it. And so some of the people said, you know, Paul doesn't keep his word, you can't trust him. So he says, look, we were not saying yes and no. Uh, As God's word is yes... And the promises of God in Christ are yes. Our word to you was also yes. But he wanted them to understand that because they were his joy and his comfort, if he came face to face and used that time to rebuke them, they would be saddened, he would be saddened, and it would be a rough time. And so rather than come to them, he had written to them to address their disobedience and to demonstrate That they would obey. Uh, So while there are some doubting his motives. And doubting uh, what he's doing. He says his conscience is clear before God. And he calls upon God as his witness. For um, addressing this the way he did. He still intends to see them. But he wants to come in a joyful time. And not in a sorrowful time. So we pick it up at chapter 2. Verse 5. Where he is talking about the situation of the first letter. He's specifically talking about the man who was uh, in, involved in a relationship with his father's wife, a uh, violation of Leviticus. He said it's a form of fornication. Even the Gentiles aren't doing, and that's saying something, because they were in Corinth, which was the uh, uh, sexual experimentation capital of Of the area. And so he says to them, uh, This guy needs to be removed. You are to remove him for his soul's sake and the sake of the community. By removing him, he will be outside where God will judge him. Hopefully, God will bring him back uh, and he won't disrupt the congregation itself. So, in that context, Paul now writes these words in chapter 2, verse 5. If any has caused sorrow, he has not caused sorrow to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. And for this end I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Uh, But to the one whom you forgive anything, I also uh, have forgiven, for I have given it for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes." Now that's quite a little section there. It's important for us to get this. Paul says, look, I didn't write this because this guy caused me sorrow. He actually was causing sorrow and disruption to you. He says, "I, I don't want to bring it up to start it all over again, you know, Sometimes when we bring things up, we go through all the process again. He says, I I don't want to say this uh, too uh, harshly. Uh, I just want you to understand that he was doing damage to you. And that's why I wrote you. But you did what I told you. You removed him from your midst while he was still in his sin. It appears now that he has repented. He has stopped the sin. He is walking again with God. And so he says, he has suffered that excommunication uh, sufficiently. So that now, rather than condemn him or bring it up or remind him or go through any of that, you should forgive him and comfort him. Otherwise, he will be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. When a person has walked away from the Lord and has come back, believe me, and I know this from lifelong experience, he, you know what you have done in disobedience. That doesn't, that doesn't go out of your mind. You are aware of your wretchedness before God. And you are striving not to follow in that path, but to walk the path of life. And you need the community to be encouraging and comforting, not constantly saying, now don't do that again, now don't do that again, now don't do that again. Because what that does is focuses on that path and draws everything in that way. It's one of those principles of the scriptures that we focus on where we're headed, not where we've been. Forgetting those things which are behind, I press forward to the high mark of the calling of God in Christ Jesus. So he says, forgive him, restore him, encourage him, so that he won't become overwhelmed by that and feel discouraged and disqualified and say, well, I might as well just go back to my sin because I can't... I can't get any benefit here. So, that's Paul's uh, statement to them. So he says, this, by the way, verse 9, this is the reason that I wrote you. I didn't write you for the purpose of removing him. I wrote you for the purpose of his soul being saved in the day of Christ Jesus. My focus was eternal. I wanted you to remove him so that God would judge him And bring him back into the community. He wouldn't be protected by you and your uh, uh, misinterpretation of grace. And in doing so, he would do damage to you as well. So he says, That's the purpose that I wrote, uh, testing you whether you would be obedient in all these things. So that's what happened. So now he says, The one whom you forgave. I have forgiven, and indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything for your sakes, I did it in the presence of Christ. And I did it for the reason of you understanding uh, that no advantage should be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now, I want to start with that part and then I'll get with him saying I did it in the presence of Christ. I'm going to take these in reverse order. Paul wants to make it clear that behind the damage that was being done to their church was not this man who sinned. But the one who leads us off the path of God towards sin, which is Satan. And he will... Not go away. He's going to keep trying to create problems. And so we have to be aware of that. He says we are aware of how he does it. I'm not so sure in this day and age we are. So what is it that Satan does? There are two primary things that Satan does in reference to those of us who are believers. That would be Israel and the church in in that sense. Um, He attempts... To deceive by altering the understanding of scripture so that a person believes that they are obeying God and his word even though they're walking in sin or in error. In other words, he doesn't say, I want you to disobey God. He says, this is okay with God. And here's the verse for that. Now, where's my proof of that? I'll give you three. That was his first lie in the garden. He says in Genesis chapter 3, in the first five verses, he comes first of all as a serpent. We have a tendency to think that's, you know, slithering from Harry Potter. He's not talking about that. In the ancient Middle East, the serpent or the dragon in the eastern culture, was the wise creature. He was the creature that symbolized wisdom. Had this been written in British English, in its original text, and trying to explain that, Satan would have appeared as an owl. The wise old owl. So Eve sees this wise creature, and he says, what has God said? She tells him, We can't eat from that tree. We can't even touch it. And he says, That's, oh, you got it wrong. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be like God. So he twists that, making her think she misunderstood what God said because he's wise. He doesn't come as an evil thing saying, go for the bad. He says, you're misunderstanding, you want to serve God, you do that by eating and being like Him, knowing good and evil and being wise. He did it with Jesus. You recall the temptation. There were three of them. but One of them was Satan bringing Him to the pinnacle of the, table, the temple and saying, throw yourself down, if you're the Son of God, for it is written... He shall give his angels charge over you, lest you dash your foot on a stone. The angels of God will be there. Throw yourself down. Demonstrate the truth of God's word because it's written that he will protect you by his angels. And Jesus said, It is also written, You shall not tempt the Lord thy God. Notice he's not trying to say, Disobey the word of God. He's saying, Obey it. He's twisting it. And the third one is Peter in Matthew. Where Jesus says, who do the people say I am? They start telling him, who do you say I am? And and Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're blessed, Peter, son of John. For flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father. The next verse, immediately after that. Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die. And he's going to suffer and be crucified. And Peter comes up and says, Oh no, that's not going to happen. And Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you do not savor the things of God. In other words, he's twisted again if God... If Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, nothing bad will happen to him. And even though Jesus is saying, I have to die, Peter is rebuking him. That deceit is coming from Satan. He is the, a liar and the father of lies. And lies are approaches in the Bible. A lie is a violation of the intent of God's word. If you say the word of God, but you say it With the wrong intent, you make the word of God false. And that becomes a lie. That's what the false prophets do. They don't come and say, go turn away from God. They say, you know, Baal is the God of the Exodus. It's the same thing. You're following God by following Baal. And that's the false prophets. So, that's one of the things that Satan does. The second thing that he does is he sows discord among the brethren. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 19, in the list of the six things that the Lord hates, uh, at the end it says, The false witness who utters lies, we just talked about that, and spreads strife among brethren. One of the things that Satan does is, if he can get us believing different things, if he can get us to think that I've got it right, you've got it wrong, he divides us. And then we're fighting over people. We're fighting over doctrines. Instead of being unified in the grace and the calling of God and in his mercy. So... This is an important notion, and Paul's going to talk about it in more detail. I want to lead you to that so that, because the way he writes this second letter is not as organized, as in my opinion, as the Romans letter. And so he kind of keeps bringing these themes back and forth. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I want you to look there for a second. This is something for you to be aware of. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. Paul's talking about false apostles. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And that's no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light or a creature of wisdom. Therefore it is not surprising that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Jesus said in the last day, many shall come in my name, saying that I am the Christ, and they will deceive many. They're not claiming to be the Christ. They're claiming Jesus is the Christ, but they're deceiving in what he said. Um, I just read a uh, recent survey that indicates that... uh, Uh, clergy are beginning to have a very poor trust level with, well, they have a relatively poor one with the church, but they have a significantly, it's the one group that's got a significant disconnect in the trust uh, factor for uh, unbelievers or for the world in that context. Uh, And part of it is because The world can't tell the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet, a true pastor and a false pastor. And in the same way, uh, it's beginning to be the case that the church can't either. So, we have to be on guard for the twisting of scripture and the contention that happens among us. Uh, Behind that is the scheming of Satan. Now, I said I was going to take these in different order. Paul says in this section... That we're looking at. uh, That if you have forgiven him. Verse 10. The one you forgive. I forgive. For indeed I have forgiven. If I have forgiven anything. For your sakes in the presence of Christ. Now this is important. Paul is not operating. Out of his own ideas. He is functioning as an apostle. He's an apostle particularly to the Gentiles and particularly the founder of this 1st Corinthian uh, or the Corinthian uh, congregation. So, when we look at 1st Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4 and 5, Paul says, When you gather and I am with you, I am telling you to, in the name and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, remove him. In other words, Paul's not just saying, I think it would be a good idea for you to remove him. He says, I'm already pronouncing apostolically in the name of Christ that this man is to be removed. Your task is to be obedient to that. So in the same way, he is now exercising the restoration and forgiveness of that person from that same apostolic framework. Uh, And he has that ability as an apostle, and I want to show you two verses that uh, express this. First, in John's Gospel, chapter 20. This is after the resurrection. Jesus appears to the disciples. uh, And in chapter 20, verse 20, uh, he shows them his hands and his side... And they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, "Peace be unto you. Shalom, shalom alechem." Right? As the Father has sent me, I send you. And he, and when he said this, he breathed on them and said, "Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them." If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. This apostolic authority, if you will, given to the apostles to say your sins are forgiven, your sins are not forgiven, is not their own doing. They don't just decide whose sins they will forgive, and whose sins they won't forgive. The construction of this text is very clear. Whom you have forgiven shall have been forgiven. And whose sins you retain, they shall have been retained. In other words, they are not causing the forgiveness, they are declaring the forgiveness, They are not causing the lack of forgiveness. They are declaring the lack of forgiveness. When I say in a ceremony, I now pronounce you husband and wife. I'm not making them husband and wife. What therefore God has joined together, I am declaring. Right? So in that sense, what Paul is saying in the name of our Lord, by His name, by His authority... He has told us to remove this one, remove him. He has told us to restore and forgive this one, restore and forgive this one. You see how it works? Now, I think that's important. This is also one of the reasons why the church has historically had a more official confession process. It's not good enough for me to just go and say, Lord, forgive me. How do I know he's forgiven me? So the confession is done in the place of one who observes the confession and then says, you have behaved according to your confession. Your sins are forgiven. You have not behaved according to your confession. Your sins are not forgiven. And I've had to do this in counseling where somebody says, well, I asked God to forgive me and I have to say, he hasn't forgiven you. What do you mean he hasn't forgiven me? You have to repent. You have to turn from your sins. You have to do restitution. You're not doing any of that. You're just saying, I'm going to keep sinning that grace may abound. Your sins are not forgiven. Based on the authority of the name of Jesus. That's what Paul's doing here. And he's doing it for their sakes. So that they will know that this has been demonstrated. And now they can move forward in that context. So in the same way that he officially removed the guy, he officially restores him in that context. Now this is a, uh, again, based on the Lord. If you turn to Matthew chapter 18, we have a similar construction here. When he says, "If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact will be confirmed." Now he's not saying take two people who agree with you. This is not a this is not an intervention, and it's not a, uh, 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 a gang up on the person. You take two people that both parties trust to give accurate judgment. You both tell your version of the story and the judges will say, this is what you should do. If he won't hear them, notice verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, they've made a judgment, then you tell the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. King James says a publican, not a republican, and a sinner. In other words, you treat him as an outsider. That's the excommunication. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered, in my name I am in their midst. Now that verse is talking about this process of excommunication. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians, when you gather together, and I am with you in spirit, in the spirit of God, because he is gathered with you, you will do this act So there is something about the formal function of this, both for the congregation and for the individual in that framework. So that we don't have to guess. is this been done? Has this alright? Try to do it privately. Try to do it privately. Twice at least privately. If it can't be done privately. And you have to go to the church with it. Then the church must act officially. But then you have to restore officially. In the same way. In the private ones. You don't. They just come back in and you function. You've won your brother. Okay. So there's a, there's a distinction there. Now. Paul then is going to continue, and uh, we get back to Second Corinthians, this time verse 12 uh, of chapter 2. He said, When I came to Troas uh, for the gospel of Christ, and a, uh, a door was opened to me in the Lord. I had no rest in my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma in every place, the knowledge of Him. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other aroma of life to life. Who is adequate for these things? Now, I want to... I want to talk about this because uh, this is this is a a fascinating uh, text. Paul's referring to what you and I know as the Macedonian call. He says, "When I went to Troas, and we find that in Acts chapter 16, uh, Luke says came to Troas." uh, Paul was going to go into Asia. He was heading off into Turkey and that area. Damascus, he was going that direction. And uh, he has a dream. And in that dream is a Macedonian, a Greek, a Macedonian. And he says, uh, come help us. And so Paul changes he be, his spirit. He's prevented. He's been prevented to go where he wants to go. And he's given this open door to proclaim the gospel uh, to uh, the Greek area, which is going to include this area where Corinth is. So he says, I came to you by a divine intervention. I did, you weren't just on my plan to spread the gospel everywhere. I have a plan to spread the gospel everywhere. But you were specifically in uh, part of this process. And he says, And therefore, in this context, God has given us triumph and he manifests through us a sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place that the gospel has come. We are a fragrance of Christ to God. Now he's using temple and tabernacle um, imagery. There are two smells in the temple and the tabernacle that are significant. One is an ointment, uh, uh, a... Anointing oil that's put on all the furniture, put on all the cloth, put on the priests themselves that is a unique one that God says that will be uh, that will be the the smell that you will identify me from. No one is to wear this except them. It's actually in a sense the smell of God uh, to us. What is the smell of us to God? Well, there is a sacrifice. And when the sacrifice is placed on the altar and the wine is put on there and the salt is put on there, the smoke ascends to God and the scripture says that that smoke uh, is a sweet savor, a sweet aroma to God. Now, that smell is a burning, cooking corpse. There are two things there. There's life and death. Uh, And he says that to those who are being saved, that death to self and alive unto Christ is a smell to God of life. And that that those who are perishing, all that is smelled is the stench of a corpse. Are Dying flesh is not the smell that rises to God. But the smell of life in resurrection through Christ is what he smells in in the context of us. And those who don't come to him, those who are perishing, the smell of the stench of their death and their sin is what ascends up to God in that context. So he says we're a fragrance of Christ." To God among those who are being saved. And among those who are being perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death. To the other an aroma from life to life. And then he says a phrase I love. Who's adequate to these things? How, how do we fully grasp? How do we fully understand? How do we fully express this? It's, it's This knowledge is too great for us, as the psalmist says. Uh, how can you be mindful of us? This knowledge surpasses me. And in that context, he wants to make it clear that his authenticity as an apostle of Christ, as a minister of the gospel is not that of a false prophet who says one thing and changes his message when it's convenient for him. That he is always trying to be obedient to God as a minister of the New Testament. Which is what he's going to talk about in the next, in the next uh, section. But I want you to hear verse 17. And then I'm almost done. We are not like many, peddling The word of God. King James says. Making merchandise of the word of God. But as from sincerity. And as from God. We speak in Christ. In the sight of God. He says. That he and his companion ministers. Are not like many others. There are people out there. Preaching the gospel. And using the word of God. And telling the Torah. And teaching that. And they're doing it because it's their livelihood. They're doing it because it's their way of making a living. They're doing it because they have found a way to get money by being a prophet. By being a man of God. By being clergy. And that's what they do. Some people want to be a doctor. Somebody wants to be a tent maker. They want to be a minister. And they're doing it for money. And he says, we're not doing that. We're not selling the word for money. We are coming as those who have been called to God and sent from God to speak correctly the word of God to God's people. Now Jesus, in John chapter 10, when he talks about being the good shepherd, he talks about the hirelings. He says, the hireling don't care about the sheep. You know, the guy who owns the sheep, the good shepherd, the one who's there, he sometimes needs others to help him. Under shepherds, if you will. And he hires them. Now, those sheep don't belong to them. They don't care that much about the sheep. They're there for the money. And so, if a wolf comes, or if a thief comes, or if a robber comes, they run away. Because they don't care for the sheep. They care more about themselves and their livelihood. And Jesus says, the hireling runs away because he doesn't care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Now, what Paul's saying is, we as apostles of Christ, he's going to expand this in the next chapter. We as ministers of the new covenant, we are not here because it's a living. We are not here because it's a livelihood. We are here because it's our life. We are here because we have been called to that shepherd and that we are assisting him for love of the shepherd and love of his sheep. We are not doing it as others do it because it's just a job. And so that's an important notion. He's going to now be it or anticipate that when he says this, that people are going to say, uh, oh, so you brag it on yourself. Oh, you're called of God. Oh, you you're, this you know, this is what the false prophets do too. And so what he's going to do in the next chapter is explain how they can know for certain that he is from God for their benefit and not manipulating them for his benefit, in a so-called official ministry. But we'll have to address that next time. Let's pray.